0: Welcome to the Debit This, Credit That podcast with Wheeler Accountants located in San Jose, California. In this podcast, we discuss how to solve accounting challenges in both your personal life and your business. We take an energetic, tech-savvy approach to solving accounting challenges that steal your focus and your time. Now, on to the show with your tech-savvy accounting experts, Matt Wheeler and Michael Bryant. All right, hey everyone, Matt Wheeler here from Wheeler Accountants with the Debit This Credit That podcast. This is episode 19, and today we're going to switch it up and do a little client or listener Q&A. We get a lot of email questions here at Wheeler Accountants, and I thought it'd be a good exercise to go through some of these. These are pretty common questions that we get and give you you know, some of the answers, some of the background, and hopefully it's useful for everyone. So we'll go ahead and, and jump right in here. The first email is uh, subject college deductions, and I'm going to you know, not t- take out all the names and everything here, obviously, but Wheeler Accountants, I'm paying for my 19-year-old niece to go to college. It's known as bribery, including books, tuition, housing, etc. For 2017, I expect it will be under $14,000. For 2018, I anticipate it will be more than $14,000. Is any of this tax deductible? Since I'm an aunt and not a parent, I'm guessing that I would not have been eligible for a 529 on her behalf as she grew up. Am I correct? Signed, client. So th- there's a there's a bunch of issues going on in this one, or not issues, but you know a couple of good questions here from the client that I think are worth considering. One, it, you know, a, a lot of people help their nieces, nephews, grandkids out with college expenses. Obviously, the parents too. Number one. None of the help is deductible. Typically, you have to be claiming the child as a dependent in order to get any sort of tax benefit from the actual payment of the expenses. If you do, obviously, then the child is perhaps eligible, then you can get the American Opportunity Tax Credit, which is a great tax credit for college tuition. Or uh, you can get some of the other credits, which may or may not be around once the tax reform thing is done here. But, you know, you have to claim the kid as a dependent in order to get the tuition deduction or the tuition credits. Two, the client here is asking about, she has specific dollar amounts, under $14,000, over $14,000. The $14,000 refers to the annual gift tax exclusion amount. That's the amount that you can give another person every year. That's not subject to gift taxes. So one point first is the actual exemption for the annual exclusion is going up in 2018 to $15,000. So I want to make sure everyone's aware that it's going to go up another $1,000 this year. Two, the fourteen or fifteen thousand, the annual exclusion amount, that applies per donor, per donee. So if you're a married couple giving to your grandchild, for instance, you can each give the fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars to the kid directly, and then the kid could pay all the expenses. So one of the you know possible answers we gave is you could just give the child the money outright in order to pay the expenses for the college tuition. Two, you can actually double or, or triple that if you give money to the kids and the parents of the kids, in this case we have an aunt, she could give money to the parents of the child and the child, and if there's two parents and the child, that's 3 times $14,000 she can give away in 2017 or 3 times $15,000 in 2018 she can give away. Again, this is under the annual gift tax exclusion amount, so there's no gift tax on those gifts. And another com- common misconception is if anybody has to pay tax on gift and money they received. Typically, the, the donee, the person receiving the money, never pays any tax on the actual cash received. Only the donor is subject to gift tax if it's applicable. Another thing to consider paying the school tuition directly to the school does not count towards the fourteen dollars or $15,000 annual exclusion amount. So, what the ANT could do in this case is actually give the $14,000 or more or whatever, pay directly the tuition to the school for that and then give the fourteen dollars or fifteen dollars on top of that if the aunt wanted to give a little extra. This is one way to actually increase that. It applies to grandparents, anybody really. Payment of tuition, payment of medical expenses directly to the provider are not subject to the gift tax limitations. Another option the aunt could do here is gift to a 529 plan. Uh, the the client here is mistaken that you would have not been eligible to contribute to a 529. You could. You could give to anyone's 529. Putting money into a 529 plan is a gift. So you can fund a 529 plan up to the 14 dollars or $15,000 annual exclusion amount every year. If you're a married couple, you can do double that to a single beneficiary of a 529 plan. And there are special rules for 529 plans where you can actually front load those plans with up to five years worth of the annual exclusion amount. If you do that, we need to file a gift tax return. We report the, the five-year gift, and we make an election to spread that five-year gift over the five years. So you're using the annual exclusion for the next five years, but you're not going over. So again, nothing is subject to gift tax. The last thing to point out in this client email is the aunt could just gift the money anyway above the limit and report the gift as a taxable gift. Sometimes people really want to avoid doing that, especially if you have a taxable estate. But if your estate's nowhere near taxable and you're way below the limits, there's not really much harm in doing a taxable gift. Now you have to file a form 709 gift tax return when you do this. but, but you don't pay any actual gift tax out of pocket when you make the gifts, okay? So you pay you pay the money to the kid, you report the taxable gift and you file a gift tax return saying I gave let's call it $100,000 to the child, you know, very generous gift to the kid. And uh, you know I'm going to use 14000 as part of the annual exclusion, so I have an $86,000 taxable gift. What happens at that point is you file filed the gift tax return, and you elect to use part of your lifetime estate and gift tax credit against the gift tax due, so you don't pay any gift tax right now. Now, when you die in 5, 10, 15, 20, whatever years, and you have to file an estate tax return, You add the gifts you've made on all the taxable gifts back into your estate at that time. And then if you're over the estate tax limit at that time, your estate owes estate tax. So these rules are in place so you can't just give away everything the the month before you die when you find out you're terminally ill and then not pay any estate tax, right? All All taxable gifts are added back into your estate. But if you're under the estate tax limit... There's not going to be a big deal about having a taxable gift besides having to file the 709 gift tax return every year. So not the end of the world. So the aunt here has a bunch of options she can do. There's a lot of ways to help fund the college tuition. And, you know, I think we answered her question pretty effectively. And she's going to, need to decide how she wants to actually fund the gift to the, to the uh, nephew or niece here. It was her niece, I guess. But, you know, she has a lot of choices. Going on to question number two. This one is uh, subject retirement account withdrawal for down payment. Wheeler accountants, I don't think Katie and I will need to do this, but I want to make sure our bases are covered just in case. I know there's a rule about allowing a taxpayer to withdraw $10,000 penalty free from a retirement account to put toward the purchase of a home. I called Schwab and they told me all I need to have to do is ask to withdraw the 10K and we file something at tax time identifying that it was used to buy a home and that we receive a refund on the portion that was taxable. A guy spoke with, could have been telling the truth, but this sounded strange. Does the IRS really tax the money upon withdrawal if being used for a home purchase? This seems to defeat the purpose of the 10K rule because the withdrawal would really only be worth around $6,000. Katie and I are kind of planning on putting in an offer earlier this week. So any advice you can give me? Much appreciated. Thanks. So this is another good question. I get this one comes up a lot. How to help fund a down payment for a home purchase? And using money from a retirement account can be an option to do so. But there's a couple things we need to clear up first. One, there is a special rule about withdrawing money from an IRA for a first-time home purchase. The limit is $10,000, but it's not tax-free. It's going to be a taxable withdrawal from the IRA, and you're going to have to pay tax on that. So he's right that it's really only going to be worth around $6,000 or whatever the net amount after taxes is going to be for the particular taxpayer. The $10,000 special rule applies to no penalty being applied when you withdraw and you're under age 59 and a half. Normally, if you withdraw early from a retirement account, if you're under age 59 and a half, there's a 10% federal penalty on that withdrawal. You can avoid that with 10, by up to $10,000 of a withdrawal for a first-time home purchase if it's qualifying. And you'll get a tax form at the end of the year when you let your custodian know what you're using it for. They'll code it a certain way. They're going to have code 2 in the distribution code, that's going to mean it's not subject to the penalty. So the IRS knows they're not going to apply the 10% penalty on there, but you're still going to pay the income tax on the $10,000. There's also a California penalty. It's smaller, but you know you don't have to pay the penalty when you use it for the qualifying withdrawal. There's a couple other options to help fund the down payment that I talked about with this client. Uh, one, if you have a Roth IRA that's been open at least for five years, then you can withdraw the principal portion from your ira completely tax free your roth ira there's no limits so the only requirements are that you have a roth ira that it's been open for 5 years not that all the amount in there's been there for 5 years but that it's been open for 5 years you could open it with $1 5 years ago and then funded it with 10,000 you know the last couple years or 15 or 20 whatever the amount is you can withdraw your total principal portion of contributions into the roth ira completely tax free and use it for whatever you want. You don't even need to use it for a home purchase, but a good option is a down payment for a house. Uh, A lot of times we will advise clients who have children that are in high school or college and have like summer jobs and they're earning some income, go ahead and open and fund a Roth IRA for your kid, even with the 100 bucks or something small because it starts that five-year clock. If you can fund more, that's great. But then that five-year clock starts, and then in the future, that kid can then tap that Roth IRA if they need to, for first-time home purchase, for, you know, whatever, opening starting a business maybe, some, some sort of good reason to tap into the Roth IRA funds, and they can take out all the principal portion without paying any sort of tax. So drawing on a Roth IRA principal can be a really good option for a down payment. Another option I gave to the client was you could borrow from your 401k. That $10,000 rule from the IRA applies to IRAs, not to 401ks, but you can borrow from 401ks you can't borrow from iris there's different rules for each but you can borrow from your 401k only catches you got to pay it back you got to pay interest and if you don't pay it back in the time frame required or you do something like leave the company or something that screws it up you maybe have a a taxable distribution on the amount that you took out as a as borrowing so you want to be careful with that one but that's a way to draw money out to use for the down payment tax free as long as you pay it back and you know temporary source of cash not have any sort of problem there so you can use those funds for a down payment as well. And then the last thing I, I talked about that some people don't really think about is if you're, if you're trying to qualify for a loan when you're buying your house, which you usually are, uh, a lot of lenders require you to have a certain percentage of cash in cash reserves in order to qualify for the loan, typically nine to 12 months of, of cash reserves. And you can actually use some of your retirement account savings, the money in your retirement accounts to qualify for the cash reserves. So you may not need to actually withdraw anything from your retirement accounts because if you need to show the – you need the proof of the reserves anyway in terms of your cash accounts and your retirement accounts, you may as well keep the money in the retirement accounts, use that as part of your proof of reserves, and then have the down payment come from other sources and not touch your retirement accounts. That's going to be the ideal scenario. I mean, we really don't want to touch the retirement accounts. But if you're going to, you have a few options. You can withdraw the $10,000, You can borrow from the 401k, you know, those kind of things. But if you don't have to, those assets still may be of use to you in qualifying for the the home mortgage. So a couple things to consider there on the down payment for the home. Uh, Client was thankful for the advice. And, you know, those are the normal considerations we'll go through when we're asking about retirement account withdrawal for a down payment. Next email from the client. This one's from a client about flipping homes, and they want to know the best entity structure. <clears throat> Subject tax questions. Wheeler accountants. Any tax benefit on these flips to be in an LLC, or would it also make sense for me to file an S-Corp from my business? Call me one free. So the client thinks it's a simple answer, which it is definitely not. But uh, there are a few things here that we can we can get into for the client. Uh, number one, just when you set up an entity to to run your business through instead of a sole proprietorship, which is when you have no entity, typically the income tax consequences are not going to change very much, if if at all. They're definitely not going to change drastically. Things don't all of a sudden become magically deductible when you have an entity when they don't, when you're a sole proprietor and vice versa. So usually there's no major tax benefit to moving to an entity structure right off the bat. Answer is different if you have partners or that kind of thing, but, Um, It's definitely a liability protection thing. You want to consider putting an entity in place if you want the extra liability protection. In that case, having an entity could help you. It's more of a legal question. You want to consult your attorney. But having an LLC or an S-corp could be a good choice for the client. But this client does flips of homes. And so there's a couple things to consider in this specific instance. One, the LLC is typically not a great structure for doing flips. And there's a few reasons why. Um, one, the LLC, if it's a single-member LLC, if he's the only owner, it's going to be treated as a disregarded entity for federal tax purposes no matter what. So it's not going to look any different on his personal tax return for federal purposes. And he's now going to have to pay a minimum $800 a year to California to keep the LLC open. It's an annual minimum tax for the pleasure or privilege of doing business in California. Not the best thing in the world, but you know it. If you're going to consider just the liability aspect, protection aspect, I guess the 800 bucks is kind of like an insurance policy a little bit, but it's not going to pay for your insurance defense costs or anything, but it'll at least have that shield in place from the rest of your assets. But not only is there an $800 minimum tax, the LLCs in California have a gross receipts fee, and this is the killer on the flips, because when you're a flip, flipper, when you're a developer, you're required to include the entire gross sales price of the home as gross receipts on your tax return. And it's part of the gross receipts calculation for the LLC fee. So not just your net gain. So if you sold a property for a million and a half, but you bought it and put you know money into it up to 1.2, so your gain's only 300, your gross receipts for the LLC fee are 1.5 million. They're not $300,000. It's kind of the opposite of you think of for like a normal capital gain or something. But that's the way it works for the LLC fee. So the LLC fee starts at $250,000 of gross receipts. At 250, you already pay 900 bucks at 500,000 you pay 2,500 bucks, over a million you pay $6,000 and over 5 million you pay almost $12,000 in the annual LLC gross receipts fee. So with the flips it's it's usually a bad idea cuz you're going to be bumped up into at least a $2,500 fee when you're over 500,000 in gross receipts, maybe the $6,000 fee if you're over a million in gross receipts. It's just going to eat into your profit on the deal. So LLC probably not a good choice for the client that's going to be flipping houses. The client asked about an S-Corp also. An S-Corp could be a decent solution. Again, no change in income taxation. They're still going to have a minimum $800 tax every year or the higher of $800 or there's a 1.5% net income tax for California with the S-Corp. So again, you're adding like an additional tax or fee on top of your normal taxes when you add one of these entities and I'm not sure it's really worth it for the extra liability protection. Usually a good insurance policy is gonna cover you a little better anyway. So this S Corp might not be the best structure either, but it could be at least a little better. That one point five percent net income tax is only on the net income. So that'd be on like the net gain of the house. So in our example, a few minutes ago or is one point five million dollar sales price and the gain was three hundred thousand. The one point five percent is only gonna be on the three hundred thousand, not on the one point five million. So Not as bad, but you're still going to end up with this extra tax you wouldn't have if you didn't have the entity set up. And the client didn't even ask about a C-corporation, but that'd be a horrible choice because then you don't get any sort of special tax treatment on the house. If you held it more than a year and you want it to be long-term gain, if it wasn't like a developed flip thing, but like an investment, very bad choice to have real estate inside a C-corp generally, so we don't want to do that. glad the client didn't even ask about it. But, um, you know, typically setting up an entity is not going to make a huge difference, not going to help i'd probably tell the client don't bother with either here's the downside to each one but if they were going to do one i'd do the s corp that way at least you have the liability protection you can you know have other partners in the s corp the downsides are going to be you got to file a separate tax return every year and you're going to have that 800 dollars or 1.5 percent net income tax whichever is higher on california so again those those extra costs are going to eat into your return a little bit next question this one's on truck purchase deduction. Hey, Wheeler accountants, quick question: the three trucks we bought last year, is there any Fed and/or state write-offs carrying over to 2017 taxes, or did we take all the deductions last year? Thanks. So we get a lot of questions about purchase of vehicles for businesses, and which is, you know, what's the better write-off: buy versus lease, that kind of thing. I know it's not exactly what the client was asking here, but wanted to go over it anyway. Uh, number one, there's special rules around depreciating automobiles for business use and there's a lot of limitations for your standard car that you purchase the depreciation limits are pretty low on how much you can write off every year uh, against the cost of the car so normally it's about four to five thousand dollars the first year it bumps up to like ten 000, eleven thousand dollars the second year and it starts dropping down and it goes down to like seventeen hundred two thousand bucks somewhere around that range for years like three four five and on So, if a really expensive car, you're not going to get a whole lot of write off when you purchase. I mean, consider you bought a $60,000, you know, Yukon or, you know, one of those, like Suburban, one of those kind of things. I mean, it's going to take you a while to recover that if it's just like a regular car. Well, I guess Suburban wasn't a good choice. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Say it was like a regular, you know, two passenger car automobile. You're not going to get a lot of of write off even if it's an expensive car. Usually leasing is better. But if you are going to buy a car, there's a six thousand pound weight limit, which is hugely important. If you go, If you buy a car with over a six thousand pound gross vehicle weight rating GVWR, you get some extra benefits on terms of depreciation. Basically, those caps on depreciation do not apply to a six thousand pound vehicle. It has to be on a truck chassis, technically, and it has to be over six thousand uh, pounds. Most of the major larger US fees qualify for this, and if you do a quick Google search, on the car you're looking at, and then GVWR, it'll pop right up in that little box at the top of how much it is right off the bet. So you're looking for something over 6,000 pounds. When you do that, you qualify for a few things. One, your car can qualify for Section 179 expensing. You're allowed to write off $25,000 right off the top for each vehicle for that, up to like $500,000 worth. So um, when you buy a new truck, this client bought three trucks, Be $75,000 we could take off right at the top in the first year from the purchase. Additionally, if it's a brand new business vehicle, we can take 50% bonus depreciation that still is around till the end of this year, 2017. Starting in 2018, supposed to go down to 40% unless they change the rules on us. But you can basically take off or write off 50% of the remaining balance after the $25,000. So you're now looking at a pretty big write off in year one. Then on top of that, you can take, you know, around one fifth of the remaining balance, five-year depreciation on the car, for the, for the next for the first year also. So you're looking at twenty-five thousand dollars plus half of the remaining cost plus one fifth of the remaining cost. So if we have a car that's seventy-five thousand dollars or so, we're looking at twenty-five thousand. You got fifty thousand dollars left. You can take half of that, so another are twenty-five thousand you got $25,000 left, you can take a fifth of that, another $5,000, you're looking at $55,000 out of the 75 written off all in year number one. Now, that's a good write-off. If you finance the car, you know, you're know you going to get a big write-off in year one without even having to pay a lot of cash out the door. Now, you're going to have a timing difference or it's going to reverse later when you're paying down the loan and you're not getting any write-off. But if you want to get an accelerated write-off in year one, buying an SUV-type vehicle is going to give you a tremendous write-off compared to buying like an under six thousand pound car. A couple other things to think about: uh, California, you know, our lovely state, is going to cap the one seventy nine deduction at twenty five thousand dollars total for all your assets. So if you bought three cars like this client did, we're going to have only twenty five thousand dollars of write-off for those clients under or those te- those cars under the one seventy nine write-off. Then the rest is going to be. The normal write-off, California doesn't get the bonus depreciation either. So what happens is you have a big federal write-off in year one for the depreciation. In year one for California, it's not nearly as much. And that reverses in later years where you have more California write-off later. But you have less federal in the future because you used it all up in year one. You used a lot up in year one. You also need to place the vehicles in service during the year. So if you literally bought them on New Year's Eve day and took delivery on January 1st or something... It's not going to qualify. You have to actually place it in service for the business and use it during year one. So make sure if you buy it, you put it in service in time to use it that year. And then the other big thing to consider is you're subject to the business use percentage limitation. So you have to actually use the car for business. And you have to make sure that it's used a high percentage, usually over 50% at a minimum to qualify for the advanced write-offs. So you got to keep a mileage log. you got to make sure you're using it for business. The client asked the question, has a painting company, so his trucks are 100% business, but a lot of people use their car for both personal and business use. you got to make sure it's tracked in a mileage log, and then we track that business use percentage. That's going to affect the amount of write-off that you get every year. If you use it 80% for business, you're only going to get 80% of those write-offs I was talking about. You're not going to get the entire amount in year one. So that was the truck purchase deduction. Let's go to the next question. Prepaid rent. Wheeler accountants, we have a new tenant who wants to pay a year's rent in advance. I'd like to record this as a prepaid rent and recognize one month's worth as income each month. The Wilshire property is basically on a cash accounting basis. Do you see any problem with amortizing this rental income over 12 months? Thank you. Uh, Yes, we do see a problem, unfortunately. Uh, As a cash basis taxpayer, prepaid rent is uh, considered income in the year received. Law is pretty clear on this, even if it's an advanced payment for rent or advanced payment for services. So as a cash basis taxpayer, you're going to pay tax when you get the cash. That can be to your advantage sometimes if you invoice clients near the end of the year, for instance, but don't get paid till January. You can defer the income on that. But in this case, for a landlord who's getting rent and they are going to get prepaid rent, you're going to take it all in year one if it's prepaid rent. Now, security deposits are treated differently because those are refundable. So security deposit is not income, and if you get a security deposit in one year, you don't have to record that as rent because you're going to have to pay that back at some point down the line. If you don't pay all of it back down the line, it becomes income in the year you don't pay it all back. Um, And then also, if you have the security deposit but it's treated as part of an advanced rent payment or it's included or bundled in there, now your security deposit is taxable. So you want to make sure you separate that out that your security deposit is separate or does not cannot be applied towards prepaid rent, that kind of thing. So uh, you want to make sure that your lease agreement and everything matches, matches all that so you're not recording the security deposit into income. And the last thing this client could consider, which probably wouldn't be worth it for your standard individual taxpayer unless it was a large amount, is they could switch to an accrual basis for this activity. That requires requesting a change in accounting method from the IRS, but it would be a way to defer the tax on the prepaid rent to see, receive, it is no, it's not earned yet. So from an accrual standpoint, it's not actually income. From a cash basis standpoint, it is. So we could record a change in accounting method and then not report all the income. That's going to be just a one-year little trick, but now you're stuck in the accrual method moving forward, and that can you know bite you also if you uh, have recorded earned income but the person hasn't paid yet. You know, or you invoice clients, like in the other example, in December, but they don't pay till January, it's now income in December, even though you haven't got paid until January, because now you're accrual basis. So, there's a lot more into that decision, but it's definitely an option. Also, if the client was like an entity, like a partnership or a corporation or S-corporation, they could also make the same change in accounting method to go to accrual basis, but you're generally stuck with that choice for a period of time. Uh, or if you're over certain ca- gross receipt limits, you have to use accrual basis and you can't use cash as like a corporation or a partnership. So uh, it's another possible choice here. Probably not useful for your standard landlord on a small rental, single-family rental or something. But another option to consider. We have one more question here today. This one I thought was a good one too. Uh, this comes up pretty often. The subject is titling account question. Hey, Wheeler accountants, hope all is well with you. I have a quick question. Philip is working and wanted to open a Schwab account to invest his savings. Is it important how the account is titled for tax reasons, and do you have any recommendations? Individual, joint tenants, tenants in common. He wasn't sure if he should open it in his name only or add my name on it too. Thank you. Uh, I think in this case the client was referring to an adult child. So in this case we'd recommend that the adult child have the account titled in their name only and not add the parent on. Um, if they're a minor child, you can, you have a couple options. You can do a Upma account, a uniform transfers to minors account, um, which is basically a custodial account where the parent controls the use of the funds still, but it, that's owned by the child. UTMA accounts can work for a while, but then the, the child reaches a certain age. I think it's 21 in California. It could be 25. I can't remember. Uh, I think it's 21. When they, when they reach that age, the, the money becomes theirs. So it's a way to put money in accounts for children but then not have the money be theirs, you know, technically, legally, until they reach a certain age. Uh, married couples, we usually recommend they use community property for everything or better yet, get a living trust and put it into your evocable living trust. Um, there's pay-on-death accounts, which can be useful for small check-in accounts, uh, especially if you have, like, a small estate or, like, not a taxable estate. Pay-on-death is easy in terms of administration Uh, Joint tenancy, typically not great. It means half roughly is, you know, yours and half is the other joint tenants um, unless you can trace who put what in. Tenants in common is kind of similar where each person owns a share of the asset. There's joint tenants with right of survivorship where it automatically goes to the other joint tenant on the death of the first joint tenant. Um, There's a lot of implications to titling accounts these ways that you've got to think about, and this really comes up mostly in the estate planning uh, context where when you want to have control over what happens to your assets and where they go, the account titling is super important. Not only for estate tax reasons, but for actual flow of funds and practical reasons. The best cho- choice is to have a living trust set up, where you then dictate that how your uh, money and assets are distributed per the terms of the living trust. And If all the accounts are titled in the living trust, it makes everything really easy. The trustee who's a successor trustee, once you pass away, they go to the bank or whoever, they say, I'm the successor trustee, Matt passed away, here's the proof, I'm in charge of the assets now, and they can go ahead and move the money around, they can close the account, they can distribute it, they can do whatever they need to do per the, per the terms of the trust, and it's really easy. If you had a pay-on-death account as part of your estate, but you also had a trust, that pay-on-death account's automatically going to whoever the beneficiary is on the pay-on-death. It could be someone that's long gone, a friend that you now hate, or, you know, probably better a relative or something, you know, that you can't stand that kind of thing. So, if you don't change those things or keep them up to date, th- they're going to go according to what you told the bank originally, and it's not going to be according to your wishes. Um, the, co- the client's question was about the child and the savings account, and just having the money in the kid's account is fine. The kid probably doesn't have a living trust yet, which is, you know, normal and okay if the kid doesn't have like a large estate then it's not going to be a big deal. But at some point, the child's going to want to put the money into, you know, a living trust or whatever. But you also want to avoid like a joint tenant titling when you have an adult child that grows up, because that actually means that part of that account or a portion, maybe all the account is going to be drawn back into your estate if you're the adult still for your child. And you don't want to have their money or any portion of their money as part of your estate, especially if you have a taxable estate. So you want to make sure the title is proper and it's for the kid only and not for you or whatever. Plus, you know, kids got to grow up, right? So it's their account now. It's not yours. You don't need to be involved in everything. Um, They're probably still on the payroll. Maybe if they just got out of college, who knows? But, um, you know, title account's very important. You want to make sure that you pay attention to it, that you set up a proper living trust if possible, and that you're checking title in the account uh, very regularly. That's one thing we here at our firm will check when we're doing tax preparation. We can see usually per the statements that come, what the titling of the account is. If we see things that are not in your trust, we'll try to point it out to you so you can go and get it fixed. doesn't matter till it matters kind of thing, but you want to make sure that you're staying on top of all that and you don't have any uh, undesired consequences result from having the improper titling of an account. So those were uh, a couple of the client questions we typically get here for this podcast. I hope it was useful to you. Just a quick reminder, please subscribe to our Debit This, Credit That podcast. We are on iTunes. We're on Podbean. You can see it on our website, uh, www.wheelercpa.com. And we look forward to hearing from you with more of your questions so we can include it on future podcasts. Thank you.